All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Um, last week, we started to, if you remember, look at uh, stuff to prepare us for Christmas. And now we're one day too late, but like I asked you last week, I'm sure you've all held off your Christmas festivities uh, till after today's sermon. Uh, but last week, we started looking at what sort of thoughts does the Bible want us to have in preparation for Christmas? Because we all want to know, we want to know how to celebrate Christmas rightly. We want to know the, the right way, a godly way to do that. And, and chief among those worries isn't, you know, how we decorate our house or whatever. Chief among those worries is where do our thoughts need to be? Where does my head need to be as we're, as we're getting toward Christmas and as we're doing Christmas? So again, we might be a day past Christmas, but you can, you can certainly look back and say, you know, where was my head in preparation? And now you've got a, a full 364 days now to get ready for next year in, in how to be thinking about Christmas, at least how the Bible uh, tries to get its readers to think, its listeners to be thinking about the Christmas story. How does God prepare them uh, for that uh, Christmas story? And so to do that, to get, you know, the idea of what does God want us to be thinking, we turn to Matthew 1, and we, we did that intentionally because in Matthew 1, you know, Matthew 1 is the story of Jesus' birth. It's the Christmas story. But the Christmas story doesn't begin until verse 18, Right? You would expect, you know, Matthew to begin. You know, the, now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. You know, you always expect the, the Gospels to begin with this sort of grand birth story, but Matthew doesn't. Matthew begins with these 17 verses before that are meant to set us up and to prepare us for verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. Uh, and so we wanted to say, well, what is God teaching us in those 17 verses? In those first 17 verses, what of importance do we find in there? What is God in these first listeners who are hearing the Christmas story, and he begins not with the Christmas story, but begins with this genealogy, these genealogies, what is God trying to do? What is he saying in those genealogies? What is, where is he getting their heads before he says, now? The birth of Christ took place in this way. And so let's, let's read those 17 verses again to get back into what sort of thoughts should be going around in our heads around the birth of Christ. Where do our heads need to be as Christmas approaches? As these people knew, we're hearing the gospel of Matthew, the good news of Matthew. We know the birth story is coming, but what is God seeding in their heads before that? Let's stand in the honor of reading the word of our God as he is going to prepare our minds for Christmas. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Rahab, or Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asaph, 
Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah uh, and, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Ockham, Ockham the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Maton, and Maton the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Let's pray. Father, we we know that getting our hearts ready, uh, our thoughts where they need to be, uh, for the birth of Christ is not something that is just a matter of, of centering uh, our hearts and minds where they need to be for one week. We know this is the things we should be thinking about uh, throughout our entire Christian life every day about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And, and so, Father, I pray that as we, as we dig through Matthew 1 here, Father, that you've given us, I pray that you would uh, open our, our minds to see these treasures in your word and that uh, we would be preparing our hearts for all that we need to think about this Christmas season uh, and about how important the birth of Christ is uh, for our past, uh, for our present, and for our future. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So uh, just just a reminder of what we saw last week, and, and I, I you know, was going to give you a test and just leave those blank and see who could remember uh, the first uh, four that we had done uh, from last week. Uh, so what is Matthew doing here? The first thing we saw last week is Matthew's getting us to think beyond the manger. So to understand the, the birth of Christ, we need, we need not just the, the story of Joseph and Mary. That's not where the Bible begins, but a, a story of generations. So, so really, when you're thinking about Christmas, think beyond the manger scene. Don't think that the, the birth of Jesus is just something that sort of is, is just sort of dropped into history. This is, this is, uh, from generations leading up to this point. The second thing is to think about how it all began. We saw that uh, in the birth story here in these genealogies that God is using Genesis language. That this, the, these first uh, 17 verses are filled with Genesis language. In fact, uh, the word genealogy is the word Genesis. Uh, so as you're reading this or as you're hearing this as a, as a Greek speaker, you're reading it, you're going to catch those same words. And it, it, like I said, if someone said, this is the exodus of Jesus Christ, you go, oh, that reminds me of the book of Exodus. Uh, so if someone says, this is the Genesis of Jesus, you go, oh, that reminds me of the book of Genesis. God's intentionally doing that. And that's made even more clear by the structure, that, that structure of these are the generations of, remember, is very much a Genesis structure. In fact, it's a structure found only in Genesis, except one time at the end of the book of Ruth. Uh, it's a structure found only there, repeated over and over and over. And here we see that same structure. 
pulled out again. Uh, these are the generations of, this is the genealogy of, um, showing us again, this is a new Genesis. What we're seeing here is a new uh, Genesis. But more specifically, we saw in Genesis, we're supposed to think not just about how it all began in, in Genesis, we're supposed to think specifically about Adam. So you should be thinking beyond the manger, think back to how it all began, and then think specifically about Adam. Now, we we mentioned in Genesis that phrase, these are the generations of, is a phrase repeated a lot of times. It's that specific pattern. But there's one time of all those, these are the generations of, that skips that pattern, and it's with Adam. Adam says, this is the book of the genealogy of and here we see uh, Matthew, uh, God making or having Matthew follow that same pattern. This is the book of the genealogy. So, so think Genesis, think those genealogies, but then specifically within Genesis, one genealogy that Christ is tied to, and that is Adam. Uh, showing us again, not only is this a new Genesis, we've got this is a new Adam. Uh, so we're, we're back. This is the beginning stuff, pulling our minds. Matthew's pulling our minds back to Genesis, pulling our minds specifically back to Adam in the book of Genesis. Uh, and then we're to think about the Messiah. So we saw this is uh, the book of the genealogy of not just Jesus, but Jesus the Christ. This is the, the promised one. This is the Messiah of all Messiahs, the Christ of all the Christ, the anointed ones. Uh, this, is, this is the one uh, that the people of God have been waiting for. And we saw those waiting passages last week, waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the redemption uh, of his people. Uh, but that's not all that we can find in these 17 verses. Uh, there's a lot in here. I narrowed it down to nine because I felt like if we just kept going. Uh, we'd seem like some of those old Puritan uh, uh, Puritan sermons that are like now point 17 uh, from this passage. Uh, there's other stuff we might. These, I think, are, are the essential things that we sort of uh, pulled together. Look back at Matthew 1, 1. We're still in this first verse. Uh, he says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So it's the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, what? The son of David, the son of Abraham. So Christ might be the first descriptor of who Jesus is and, and the, the most important, but it's not the last. He's not just this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, who is the son of David, the son of Abraham. So let's look at those first things. So the, the next thing we're meant to think of is to think about David. So as we move through, this is, this is Jesus. This is Jesus the Christ. So we should think about Christ, think about Messiah. And then he is the son of David. So we should be thinking back to David. We should be thinking about David. But, but we're not just supposed to think about David. Specifically, we're supposed to think about the son of David. Jesus is not David. Jesus is the son of David. David. Now, what does that mean? The son of David? Because we know, we know, I mean, it just says in the genealogy, we know David wasn't Jesus' father. So what does it mean that he is the son of David? God wants us to know Jesus is in the line of David and that's important, right? That's important for some reason. Well, what are, what's, why is it important to remember that Jesus is, or to know that Jesus is a son of David, in many ways, the son 
of David, and, and you guys are going, I didn't we talk about this for like four months, uh, two years ago? We did. So we could delve into what does it mean, son of David, son of Abraham? We could delve into all sorts of passages, just sort of like, like shooting through it. What are we supposed to remember when we think about Jesus as son of David? We're supposed to remember David is the line of kings. From David and his sons come the kings. And that's going to be made more clear that God's wanting us to remember that about David in verse 6. Because in verse 6 it says, And Jesse, the father of David, the king. So so of all the people in the genealogy here in Matthew 1, it is David that gets David the king. I mean, lots of the people in these genealogies, especially post-David, a lot of them are kings. This is in many ways a genealogy of kings. Solomon, Rehoboam, almost all of the people are kings, but only David is called the king. Why? Because all of these other kings are only kings because they come from David. They're only kings because they are sons of David. But God made promises not just to David. God made promises that we're supposed to remember, promises to David's son and his sons. Promises not just given to David, but to generations after him. Promises that were made about the genealogy, about the generations that would spring from David. So what what promises are we talking about in terms of understanding Jesus as the son of David? Well, I think let's let the gospel actually narrow it down for us. Luke chapter 1. You can flip to Luke chapter 1. Keep your place in Matthew. We'll be right back here. What about... What about being the son of David? What? What? Because there's a lot about David, right? I'm not like I'm not going to say, all right, guys, let's open our Bibles to Samuel, and we're going to start in Samuel, and we're working, we're going to find out what, and then we're going to read all the Psalms uh, and see if we can grasp it. what. What specifically about David? David's kind of a big character. What specifically about about Christ as the son of David is important? Well, God is actually going to tell us. Actually, the angel Gabriel is going to tell us. The angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He's talking to Mary, and this is what he tells her about the son that's in her womb. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So the child, Jesus, is he's the son of God. He's the son of the God most high, but he's also the son of David. And what promise uh, to David's sons is Gabriel uh, wanting us to think about the throne, the throne, that he is a son of David. And that means the throne of his father, David, awaits him. David is the king and Christ is the son of David. So when we think about the birth of Jesus, we're supposed to think of him not just as David, not just a foreshadowing or a postshadowing of David. We're supposed to think of him as a son of David, specifically in reference to his kingship, to his ruling. The, the, the Jesus who is being born, this Christ is a kingly birth. This is a kingly son. 
And what promise is made to, to David's genealogy in terms of the throne? So Luke chapter 1, he's going to inherit the throne of his father David. Well, why does that matter? What promises has God made about the throne of David? What's he pointing back to? Well, 2 Samuel chapter 7. I told you I was going to make you turn to Samuel and look, here we do it. Uh, so 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's where we get these promises made, not just to David, but to David's sons, to the sons of David. 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 11. And foundry kids, I am seeing how quickly you're able to find 2 Samuel. You are being timed uh, right now. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now you jump down to verse 16 and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So Luke chapter one, Gabriel says he's going to get the throne of his father, David. What is that implying? Well, we know the promises from second Samuel seven, that this throne is a throne that will be established forever. This is a promise made to David's son that his offspring will rule forever. Now, what's the problem with that? When you're reading this and you see it promised, hey, your son's gonna, gonna, he's gonna, I'm gonna build him a house and then he's gonna build me a house. It's gonna be great. He's gonna rule forever. What's the problem with that? None of that has been true of David's children to this point. I mean, Jesus' genealogy is actually pointing that out, right? It's David, and then he was the father by the wife of Uriah of Solomon. But then it's not like, and Solomon reigned forever on his father's throne, as 2 Samuel 7 promises. Uh, so what do we see? We see already there's king after king after king in David's line in Matthew 1. Generation after generation, that does perish. That doesn't rule forever. But that's all going to change, Matthew is telling us. And Luke is telling us that's all going to change with Christ. In fact, Gabriel points this out to Mary in Luke 1 in verse 32. Right after uh, he'll be given the throne of his father, David, he tells her in verse 33, I kind of left this hanging, uh, verse 33, he tells her right after saying he's going to get the throne of his father, David, verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So what does Gabriel tell Finally, we've got the son of David that was promised. Because much like with Abraham, as we're going to see, when it says your offspring, really David's going to have a lot of offsprings, but there's one offspring. There is one true son of David, and that is Christ. And he is going to have the throne of his father David, and, and he will reign forever and ever his kingdom without end. So the book of, of Jesus, 
is going to be the book of this, the, of the birth of Jesus is going to be the story of a king, but not just a king, because we've had other kings. We've had, we, we, we've had David, and we've had Solomon, and we've had, we've had other kings. This is going to be the story of the king, the son of David, the one to fulfill the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7. This is the one who will have the, the eternal kingdom. This is the eternal king. Promised to David himself, a king whose throne will be from everlasting to everlasting. In fact, we know that the people are waiting for the Messiah to be this. So when Matthew says this is the son of David, uh, and Luke is, and Gabriel's telling Mary, hey, he's going to take the throne of his father David, they don't have to explain to the people, that's right. The Messiah is going to be the son of David. The people were already actually expecting this. You see this in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, the people are expecting the Christ, not just to be a son of David, but to be the son of David. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 23, Jesus is healing the, the people possessed by demons here. And it, in verse 23, the people ask this, all the people are amazed and said, can this be what? The son of David. Can the, not, not can this be the Messiah? Not can this be the Christ? Not can, can this be not a son of David? Can this be the son of David? There was already this expectation that when the, the Messiah came, as we saw last week, this, the Messiah would also be the son of David. So again, when the people say the son of David, they weren't just hoping, is, is Jesus from the line of David? They're saying, is this the one, is this the promised son of David? The one who will reign forever and ever, kingdom without end. The Messiah is born the son of David. So Matthew showing us from the very beginning, this is the story of the birth of Jesus, who is the son of David. So our minds are supposed to be, as we're preparing and as we're thinking about what's coming, he's already telling us he's the son of David. This isn't just, again, a marker of, hey, he's in David's line. And we go, oh, good. Well, the Messiah is supposed to be in David's line. And we can just, you know, create a, a, a family tree and mark it out. And he's like, no, this is to say the son of David is to make a messianic claim. It's to make a Christological claim. This is the one. This is him. And I, just as the people are going to ask in 12 chapters and say, can this be the son of David? You're already reading going, yeah, I read it in chapter 1, verse 1. Like I already know this is indeed the son of David. David is not just, or Christ is not just a son of David. He is the son of David. More the son of David than even Solomon was. This is the son. But it's not just David that we're supposed to think about. Because he's not just the son of David and then it ends. And although there's a lot of Davidic focus that we could, that we could point out from verse 6 to the, to the fact that 14 is the, is the Jewish number for David, all sorts of things that you can, if you want to know more, we can pull back even more David stuff from this. But it's not just David. It's also that Jesus is the son of Abraham. You look Matthew 1, 1. Again, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we're supposed to think about David. So you can probably guess 
who we're supposed to think about in the next part. So number six, you have five, you should think about David. Six, you should think about Abraham. We should be thinking about Abraham. But again, just like with David, God doesn't just want us to think about the promises to Abraham. He's not just Abraham. He is the son of Abraham. We're supposed to be thinking about the promises that God makes, not just to Abraham, but to Abraham about his children. Because Jesus is the son of Abraham. Why does it matter that Jesus is the son of Abraham? Is it just saying, hey, not only is he in line with David, Jesus is also Jewish, right? Is that all it's saying? Like, if you were wondering, uh, you know, is, is Jesus even Jewish? Uh, is that all it's doing? Just establishing some sort of, you know, like we have to mail it off to find out, oh, he is indeed, you know, 72% Jewish. Uh, and, and, you know, a Native American. What did you know? Uh is that what's going on here? Is he just establishing that ethnic line? Well, not, not exactly. This isn't just saying he's Jewish. Again, that'd hardly be something to write home about. The Bible's wanting us to think about Abraham and the promises made to him and his kids. So what promises were made to Abraham, specifically to the children of Abraham, to the point that we would care that Jesus is the son of Abraham? What promises matter? Well, uh, look at Genesis 22. Now, we actually talked about this uh, two Wednesday nights ago. We talked about this uh, extensively. Mr. Jackson uh, pointed this out several passages. Miss Nancy knew where to turn, so she's already turning there. She, was, she got the gold star for that day. So Genesis 22, the story of uh, Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and, and Isaac. Of course, we know Abraham takes uh, Isaac up to be a sacrifice like the Lord tells him. Uh, Abraham, remember, confident Hebrews tells us that even if he went through and, and killed Isaac, that the Lord would, would raise him up because he'd do what he promised. But the angel of the Lord in that story, he stays, he stays Abraham's hand. So the angel of the Lord stops the hand of Abraham. That's uh, an interesting story if you believe the angel of the Lord to be Jesus. Because then you have Jesus stopping the death of an only begotten son, which is, is just interesting. Uh, beloved son. So, uh, but listen to what the angel of the Lord tells to Abraham in Genesis 22, beginning in verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, Paul is going to give us a little bit of, uh, of, uh, of Old Testament uh, sort of uh, insight here. And Paul's going to tell us that, that Jesus is that promised seed. He's not just one of the promised seeds uh, to Abraham. This, Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say, and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So Paul tells us in Galatians chapter three already that that passage in Genesis 22 is really about about the son of Abraham, about the offspring who is Jesus. So Father Abraham, 
had many sons, right? That's true. We don't have to stop singing that song. Uh, Father Abraham did have many sons. And yet at the same time, Father Abraham really only had one son. I mean, there were many, there were many sons of Abraham. Abraham was, was able to have children, uh, though he was good as dead. And now we see he continues to bear children thousands of years after his death. There are more children, it promises there, of Abraham than stars in the sky or sands on the sea. That that every person the Lord brings to faith is a son of Abraham, Jesus is going to tell us. And that they will number a thousand times the stars in the heavens, an innumerable number. But even though Abraham had many sons and continues to have sons. So, you know, when Abraham was like, oh man, I'm, I'm almost dead. How can I have any children? He doesn't even realize that he's going to be dead for thousands of years and still continue to have children after he's actually dead. God's like, you got this, this, this miracle with you and Sarah is nothing compared to what I'm going to do in the hearts of, of people. But Jesus is the son of Abraham. This is, Christ is the fulfillment of that promised seed. This is the blessing to the nations that Genesis promised us. This is the one who's going to make sons and daughters of Abraham from the Gentiles even. So as we get ready for Christmas and the Christmas story, we're supposed to be thinking about this great promise of worldwide blessing that's going to come not just from one of Abraham's children, but from the son of Abraham. So we've got, we should think about, added this, we should think about David, the promise to the the son of David, which is what Christ is. He is the son of David. We get the promise to the son of Abraham, which again, Christ is not just a son of Abraham. He is the son of Abraham. The one promised in 2 Samuel, that's Jesus. The one, the, one, uh, the one promised in Genesis 22, that's Jesus. And then as we move out of verse 1, what does God do? As we move out of verse 1 in Matthew, God takes us through the family of Abraham. You get Abraham and Isaac and Jacob down generation upon generation all the way to Joseph and Mary and Jesus. And what's funny is, starting in verse 2 till you get down to about verse 17, that's the part we're tempted to skip. Or we're tempted to just kind of breeze our eyes over, right? Because it's a, it's a bunch of names we don't know. It might even be a bunch of names that we don't know how to pronounce. We don't even know where to find them in the Bible. So if we're looking at them and they don't have a cross-reference, we go, well, that, they must not even be that important. Doesn't he have a cross-reference in our Bibles? Plus, what are we, we're, we've only got a little bit of time to read, and I need to get something to help me in my spiritual walk. Right? So you're lucky I'm not just reading through just Paul's letters all the time. Uh, I need, I, what's, how's, a, how's a genealogy going to even help me? I've got my kids crying over here. I've got my, my, my wife over here doing this or my husband or I've got this going on at work. I, 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 I need more than a genealogy. I've only got so much time. So let's, let's skim through verses 2 through 17 and, and then let's get into the meat. Right? Let's get into the good stuff. But I'm going to tell you, this is, this is not just a list. This stuff, 
you know, all, I, all just give me the first name Abraham and the last name Jesus, and, and I'm sure the rest is just sort of filler. And, and let me, this is, this is meant to be an aside that's also an encouragement for how you read the Bible. Do not skip over genealogies. Ever. Ever. Uh, do not skim them. Do not skip over them. Do not think the book of Numbers is just a, a placeholder uh, in the, the Pentateuch. Don't skip over. The, and there, there, there's two grievous errors we commit when we either skip over or just breeze blindly through these, these genealogies. One is to do that is to treat God as foolish in this way. Either God is wasting his words Either he's just talking to be talking. And he's like, well, so, you know, well, the, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Oh, and have you ever thought about Abraham? Well, because Abraham gave birth to Isaac and then Isaac, you know, and, and then, and he's just kind of doing that till he gets back on track in verse 18. Either God's doing that or he doesn't understand what we really need. Right? And so he is foolish in that he thinks a genealogy is going to help me or be useful for me. And so he put it in his Bible as if, I didn't he know he could have just skipped from verse 1 to verse 18? I don't need this genealogy stuff. He either th- So when we've got genealogies, either God thinks we don't need them and he puts them in anyway. Or he thinks we do need them because he doesn't know any better. And the truth is, we would never say either of those things about God. But when we skip genealogies, that's what we're implying. We're either implying, you didn't need, we're basically saying, you didn't need to put this in here. And I don't know why you did. I don't know if you put it in because you, you, even though you knew I didn't need it, but you just wanted to put it in. Or I don't know if you put it in thinking I would need it, but I don't. Either way, when we do that, we're implying that God is foolish in some way. And again, we'd never say that. And the second thing is maybe this isn't even more grievous. I don't know. You can, if you want to debate which one is the worst thing to think about God, we can do that later. The second is if you do that, you are subtracting from God's word. I mean, to, to skip, I mean, none of us would, would take passages out of our Bibles. But if you're skipping sections with names, like if you're like one name, two name, three names, I'm done. Uh, if you're skipping sections with names, you are essentially removing those verses from the word of God. Just as, just as, I mean, you might as well have taken out a pair of scissors because either way, you're not going to read them. If you're skipping them, you are subtracting from the word of God. And this genealogy is no different. It is packed with some good stuff. So that's my aside before we now get into, you know, some of the stuff we can learn from this genealogy explicita, this this laid out genealogy. Because what this genealogy is going to do, this genealogy is going to show us that basically the entire story, every story in the Old Testament is a Christmas story. So number seven, think about the entire Old Testament as Christmas story. In this way, every one of these names is leading us up 
to the Christmas story. Every single one from the famous ones like Abraham or Isaac or David or Josiah, the ones that we're like, we see that name and go, oh, that's one of my favorite stories. And we like run back to the Old Testament and, and we read that story real fast and we jump back to the genealogy and we skip the others. The famous names are the names we don't even remember, like Ram, Jotham, Abihu, whatever it is. What is God telling these readers in Matthew by listing all of these names? That every single name was a name leading the people and humanity toward the birth of Christ. Every story in the Old Testament is a Christmas story or is at least part of the Christmas story because they are all part of getting us to this moment. Like Paul's going to tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. All the promises of God find their yes in him. So every promise that God has made is pulling us. So when you, we, and we've seen it with Abraham. We've seen it with David. The promise made to Abraham in Genesis 22. What was that really about? That was fulfilled in Christ. The promise to David, 2 Samuel 7. Who was that really about? That was fulfilled in Christ. Every one of these stories, every one of these lives is here to get us here to get us to this point in the story to get us in verse 18 now right now after all of this this story has been going on from adam to now so before the christ has has even been born god is already reminding us that everything is leading us to this moment And it's no surprise that Matthew's going to be filled. When you read the book of Matthew, it's going to be filled with phrases like what? About how Jesus is fulfillment of this promise and that promise. If you've read Matthew, you know he's always pulling us back to the promises. This is a fulfillment, as the prophet said. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This was to fulfill what was spoken. And here it's no different. When you approach Christmas and and you realize that that 4,000 years of human history of creation history have been building to this point. When you realize that these names are are standing shoulder upon shoulder upon shoulder upon shoulder upon shoulder to get us here, when you think about that, well, that brings the great weight of all that has gone before. And again, this is why I said it'd be great if we could expand our mangers Beyond just uh, Joseph and Mary and shepherds. and I mean, I would love to have like a creepy like 10,000 eyes uh, sort of watching the event in the background because that's really what's going on. Because around our mangers should be every story. You could put, you could put Isaac behind your manger. Abraham, David, you could put Ram. I don't even know, I don't even know how Ram fits in, but he does, Right? You could put a Bayud. You could put a Aminadab. You could put Joth. You could put all these people. You need, but they're all leading to this moment. All of their lives chained to this one. That's why it said, it said every name, every person, all of them leading to this. That makes Christmas even weightier because it bears the weight of a thousand generations. But even those stories, which, is, which in themselves would be you know, great truth and instruction. Even, even those stories, you know, he could, have just, he could have just had these genealogies and been like, look, 
all of human history. This is the book of Jesus Christ. That reminds me of Matthew, or reminds me of Adam. This is Abraham's line to David the king. And here's David's line. So we're, we're sort of, we're sort of galloping toward the birth of Christ. That would be alone uh, enough to go, wow, Christmas is a big deal. This is, this has got all the Old Testament behind it, but, but God does even more. God throws in the midst of these genealogies some unexpected things that catch our eye if we're paying attention, if we haven't skipped down to verse 18. Right. And if we're not just, you know, name jumping, if, if we're actually paying attention, he puts some he puts some things to make us go ding, like little Easter eggs. Now, this is going to be Christmas eggs. I don't know how that works, but like little things that, that catch us and go, that's something. And so here's the eighth thing I want you to think about when it comes to Christmas. Think about how God uses unexpected people and events. Because if you notice in the genealogies, the genealogies all follow a pattern. If you're reading through them, it's so-and-so fathered so-and-so and so-and-so fathered so-and-so. So if you look at Matthew, you'll see that. Just look through it. And so-and-so fathered so-and-so and so-and-so fathered so-and-so. And that pattern repeats. A break in that pattern then becomes a point of emphasis. So if so-and-so fathered so-and-so and then the pattern changes... It's just like with a piece of music or the piece of poetry. Like when the pattern changes, you go, wait, something's different. Something has changed here. And in, in, in this genealogy, God breaks the pattern in a few places, but most glaringly, he breaks the pattern around five women. In verse three, by Tamar. Verse four, by Rahab. Verse four again, by Ruth. Verse 6, by the wife of Uriah. Verse 16, of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. So, so let's, let's focus first on the, the four women before Mary. These are all well-known women in the Old Testament. These are names you know, but they're all unexpected women to be in the line of the Messiah. I mean, Tamar... Tamar's children that are going to be mentioned in this line, Perez and Zerah, they come from her having to seduce her father-in-law. That's where these kids come from. So Tamar's in the line because Tamar seduced her father-in-law and he gave birth to Perez and Zerah. Rahab, Rahab we know, was a, a prostitute in Jericho. Ruth was a Moabite. And remember, we remember how Moab got started. Moab was born from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. And the Moabites were forbidden among the people of God. And yet here she stands in the line. The wife of Uriah, she can't even be named. We, of course, know this is Bathsheba. So if you're going to point out women in Jesus' line... It wouldn't be these women. If you're like, okay, we're listing a bunch of men. Let's throw some women in. You know, it wouldn't it'd be like, you know, where's, where's Sarah? Where's Rebecca? And I think that's the point. These are all unexpected women whose lives contained some very unexpected events. But God used both them and the events in their lives to bring about the Messiah. Because what is this setting us up for? The final most unexpected woman. 
the the most this is this is you think you think it's unexpected for him to use Tamar and what she did. You think it's unexpected for him to for him to use Rahab. You think it's unexpected for him to put the put the the line of the Messiah? Okay, save a Moabite. That's fine. But Jesus is going to be birthed from a line that when his genealogy comes out, it's going to say, you know, Jewish and Moabite. Bath, in the line of Bathsheba? I mean, we, in the line of the wife of Uriah? And here, the most unexpected in the last name, Mary. She's, that's nothing. She's a virgin. And yet she's going to somehow conceive and give birth to the Christ? What do we learn from that? God, we learn that God can accomplish his purposes through anybody and through any means. You might feel like an unexpected person to be used by God. You might have a past that you think makes you unusable. Decisions you've made that you think, okay, even if God gets me into heaven, he's going to get me out of the line of anything great he was planning to do. But just as these women, for all of their history and all of their backstory, were women of the line leading to Christ, if you are his, then you are in this line as well. They are used by God to lead to his kingdom coming and you're being used by him as his kingdom advances. You're just, God can use as unexpected as you think you might be. Christmas reminds us, this genealogy reminds us that God uses whatever people he determines, however unexpected they might be. The last thing we're going to see, look at, the, look at the very end of the genealogy. Look at verse 17. The last thing we're going to see is to think about how God is in control of all of human history. God is in control of all of human history. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. In fact, if you're, if you're big in, like I said earlier, if you're big into numbers and symbols like the Jews were, guess what number value the name David was? 14. I mean, again, we're going back to even the fact that you're like, why are there 14? You're like, well, maybe, the, I mean, D, V, D, four, six, four. You don't have to be good at arithmetic to know four plus six is 10 plus four is 14. Uh, so, I mean, th- this is, this was already, this is, they would have been going, Ooh, like, you know, like there'd have, there would have been a book, you know, 14 reasons to think that David was mentioned in, in verse, you know, uh, in verse, in verse 17. And it's, and guess, guess what name David is in the list? He's the 14th name, but that's, that's all right. So, so what is God teaching us in all that though? What is he teaching us by having 14 generations that 14 and 14 and 14? What is he trying to show us? One, this is intentional. God's not like, and would you believe it? It was 14 generations. And then, and then like, I'm about to blow your mind, people. Lucky me, 14 more generations. And then, you know, send me to Vegas, 14 more. That's not what God is saying. This is all intentional. The names, the pacing, all of it 
controlled by his hand. Tamar, by his hand. 14 generations, by his hand. Ruth, by his hand. 14 generations, by his hand. All of them controlled by him. And we can remember that the same is true for our life on this side of the coming of the king. He was leading everything, leading up to the king's coming. And now we who sit on the other side of that coming. I mean, we can look at, we can look at God's timing and wonder about it. But remember, these 14 years of 14 generations upon 14 generations upon 14 generations span thousands of years. 4,000 years. From the time of Adam to the Christ, 4,000 years intentionally. And every single one of those years, over the thousands, each intricately, molded and shaped and moved by his hand. All directed by the hand of God. And each span of those a Davidic length. Making even the pacing of human history proclaim his intentions. And think about it. Like I said, not only is God in control of this massive swell of 14 generations and 14 generations, he shows us That in that control over human history, he's also in control over personal lives. Because this 14 generations happened through these people. And the children that they had, the ones that they fathered, because it was the will of God for them to father this child, who would then father this child, who would then be used by this, who would then have a child by this woman to achieve this. God controls human history, but that control is also over personal lives. God's crafting this worldwide tale, but he's doing it through the lives of fathers and mothers and children of generation upon generation, all leading to the king and his kingdom. God's in control of that. And God is still telling that story today in us. One day, our lives will be part of that genealogy. Our part in a a tale that seems to be long in telling, but that is purposeful in every story, even in yours, as unexpected as you might feel. (laughs) Who knows when Ram ever, Ram ever realized, huh, the Messiah came from me? From my line? This is the tale that he's been telling of fathers and mothers and children upon children upon children. God's telling the story of his son, but he's telling it through the history of his people. His very real people. And we need to remember, that's another reason as you read the genealogy, another thing to remember, these are real people whose lives are just as real as yours who are just as undeserving as you, who might have died feeling just as anonymous as you feel now, but yet used by God to do great things, even if it was great things just through their children's 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 children. There's a blessing in that. And you don't know the way that God is going to use your faithfulness. And you may, may want the seeds to sprout now. 
and they may not come to full fruition for 14 generations upon 14 generations upon 14 generations. They were just as real as us, and we are just as important as them. Because we too are his children. God is in control of all of history, and that means he's in control of our lives. He's using us and our children and our children's children to tell the world's greatest story. So when you're thinking about Christmas, think about how God was in control of all of history then and used his people to tell the story. And he's in control of all of history now. And he's using you to continue to tell it. Let's pray. Just as we take a time to to think, what should we think about as, as Christmas draws close? Well, we can, we can always pick up Matthew 1 and we can read where God wanted to take our minds, the minds of his people, before telling us about the birth of Christ. See in your minds even now how he surrounds that manger scene, not, not just with shepherds and wise men and flocks, but with the entire history of the Old Testament. Every name, every person, every story we love, the stories that even embarrass us, the ones we don't even know, the stories that shock us. All of them surrounding this event. All of them being used by God to get us here from generation to generation. The highs and the lows but all leading to this. Those great words. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Father, we come to you, our father today, but we are your children and we are children of Abraham solely because of what you have done for us. The fact that you sent your son to make from us hearts of stone into children of Abraham. And so, Father, as we think about the birth of the Christ and we think about how all of your promises have found your yes in in him so that now we can utter our amen to you for your glory because we know you will keep all of your promises and we can trust you and you're in control and you're crafting all of it. Everything from the the stories to to the timing, every bit that you do is done in faithfulness. And that's true in our lives as well. It may not, our lives may not last 14 generations. But sometimes the things we go through seem to be lasting that long. Our desires to do great things, our desires to see the fruit of our faithfulness sprout a hundredfold in front of our faces. But we know we can trust you. And we know that if we're faithful to you, even if we end our lives anonymous to everyone but these who love us most, that there's no telling how you will use our story. There's no telling what fruit you will bring from it. And so God, help us to remember 
all that you did through your son, all of the promises that were fulfilled in him. And may that cause us to hope as we see our unexpected lives used by you in some amazing and unexpected ways. May we trust your faithfulness and may we utter our amen to you for your glory. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.